Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. And I'm Banning Air, co-hosting the special edition of our program. Afropop Worldwide, in case you didn't know, has been on public radio since October 1988. That's 28 years! Woo-hoo. Whoa! That's hard to believe. It but is. But I tell you, a lot has changed in the big world of music we cover. And that's why we're taking this chance to look both back and ahead to assess where African music's been over these years and where it's going. We're calling it African Music at the Crossroads. You know, a lot of the music this program featured in the early years had its roots in the 1960s and 70s, what we call the golden era of African pop. And really, of pop music everywhere. But today, the new music of Africa is quite different. It's being created by young artists who never knew colonialism or even the early years of independence. And who didn't grow up with James Brown. (laughs) (laughs) Original Mr. Flavor Party Dance on the beat. That's right. They grew up with hip-hop, dancehall reggae, and the internet. And they found ways to project their music and profit from it that the prior generation could only envy. The music of today's African cities, often lumped together under the term Afrobeats with an S, is packing stadiums all over the continent and even in the United States. Afrobeats, with its sophisticated programmed grooves and prominent use of auto-tuned vocals, is not to be confused with Afrobeat, no S there. Afrobeat is the funky political music created by Fela Anikula Pokuti in Nigeria in the 1970s. We're working on an entire program on the phenomenon that is Afrobeats. But today, we're going to take a step back and look at the big picture, the grand sweep of music history. So, for this program, I did something a little different. I interviewed George. By the way, Benny, why did you bring the whiskey? (laughs) Well, I just thought it would loosen things up a bit. Because, George, I really think your personal story tells us a lot about how African music has entered the consciousness of Americans over the years. Well, that's true. I've seen a few things in my day. I also interviewed Rab Bakary, a Ghanaian American who's played a big role in developing the new music of African cities and is now working to introduce it into the American music landscape in new ways. It's gonna be a freewheeling ride, but let's start out with music. For all the changes going on, there are still groups playing the kind of roots pop that first drew me out of my rock, folk, jazz past and gave me a mad passion for the music we call Afropop. From Mali, here's a new band called Bamba Wasalu Groove, created by a veteran of the Malian scene, Bamba Dembele. This comes from their 2015 debut album, Farima. Bajila na keya 
work and deep Bambara vocals from Mali. That's Bamba Wasulu Groove. I'm Josh Collinet. And I'm Banning Air, co-hosting on this special edition of Afropop Worldwide. African music at the crossroads. I interviewed George in his home studio in Washington, D.C. to find out more about what brought him to become the host of Afropop Worldwide. We started with the present. You were honored at a special Afropop yeah. event as an icon yeah, of African icon. music. How does that feel? A, that feels like old. I'm an icon. <laughs> hmm. Naturally, George had some choice words for the gathering, remembrances from his storied past. Well, I started with my parents, of course, and I, it was true because my mother is the woman who gave birth to this guy and who transferred her genes that are very joyous and uh, love music and happiness and all that. And then my father was this French guy, was very stern, but also he was a trickster in a lot of ways, which I am too. But he gave me that structure that, you know, that led me not to be a ruffian, which I could have been. But I survived. You had the right stuff to become a ruffian? I had the right opportunities, I tell you that. <laughs> I was born in a small village in Cameroon. I mean, actually, it's just a hospital in the middle of the forest. It was the American hospital in Matut, which is about 100 kilometers from my village, which is Bitié. But to travel that distance, Jesus, it took forever. And my mother had the first child, a girl. She gave birth in the forest. And of course, the, the child died oh, at birth. Yeah. And then I came out. And my father said, I'm not taking any chances. You go to, uh, to Matut. Mm. And they arranged a tipoy, it's called. A tipoy is two bicycles. You put them side by side. You make a frame, you know. And in between the two pieces of wood, you make the bed. And, you know, there are four or five 
strong people pushing these bicycles on the road. <laughs> and that, that's how you made your first road trip? Yeah. Yeah, man. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. That's yeah. amazing. That's yeah. great. And there were many more road trips to follow. By the way, we're hearing music from George's fellow Cameroonian and old friend, the late Francis Bebe. George spent his youth moving between France and Cameroon. He played guitar and sang mostly French and American pop songs, though he barely spoke English at the time. In 1962, Georges came to New York City and began his life in broadcasting. It was the Cold War, and I was brand new in America. And this gentleman who was in New York, who was the correspondent of the Voice of America at the UN, his name was Kay Watson, Kenneth Watson. He was a Russian guy. But you know, at the time, everybody took an uh, English name. Dimitri Rolato. <laughs> yeah. And what well, Kenneth Watson would do. <laughs> <laughs> Did his accent give him away? Oh, no, no. The guy had the voice that was just, I mean, he was, oh, it was fabulous. Wow. And he said, uh, you know, I went to pass the test there. I was a kid. I didn't have a job. I started selling socks at B. Altman when I came to America. Selling socks. At B. Altman, beautiful department store across the street from uh, the Empire State Building. Oh. Yeah. And then I went to the French Embassy, to the Cultural Center, and somehow they had me read books. I had piles and piles of books to read, and the guy says, uh, you know, it's very funny. You're the only person who really sounds French, and you're black. <laughs> Say, so? <laughs> Those books he was reading were for student language labs, but the work soon led to better opportunities. And then I came to Washington, and it was Terry DeRosa who was head producer. And Terry became like my mother. And Terry wanted me to be the best in radio. See, you have the talent. I want you to be the best. This is VOA, Voice VOA, of America. Voice of America, because, uh, you know, from New York now, I'm in, in Washington, D.C., where toilets were still having, you could see the silhouettes of the signs, black or white. Wow. And the funny thing is, the black people would never, never go into the white. And I didn't know, so I went anywhere. And everybody was saying, you're going in there? It's white people? I said, what do you mean it's white people? Don't they do what I do? <laughs> Come on, give me a break. But anyway, so Terry would take me in the studio for days. We used to do big epics where I would do many voices, oh. and, you know, telling stories, and we put music, boom, 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 mostly about revolution, American revolution, you know. Oh, really? You're, you're, you're telling them the story yeah, of the American it, revolution yeah, in yeah. French in with French. music, yeah. and doing with all music the characters. And, doing, and George Washington say, Je veux que vous alliez tout traverser le Delaware. Allez-y, mes enfants, allez-y. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and the music, boom, 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 <laughs> and the waves, <laughs> and the people say, oh, <laughs> I love that, you know? That's I really nice. love that. That's yeah. nice. Pretty soon, George was hosting a music show. Now, this was the 60s. Miriam Makeba and Hugh Masekela were breaking African music on American radio for the first time. But the folks at VOA were a little slow to catch on. It was so bad that the head editor cut off all the clicks 
from uh, Miriam Makiba's click song. I thought they were distortion. Oh, did you hear that? Said, yeah, yeah, that's part of. No, no, no. Remove it. Oh! No, you can't do that. That's our language. What's the matter with you? Oh, so we, terrible. We, he removed all the clicks in the click song. <laughs> Voice of America program, Bonjour l'Afrique, mostly played black American music, soul, funk, blues, R&B. At first, he didn't play any African music, but he did tell stories about his childhood in Cameroon. My village has always been in my heart. Yeah. Village music and you know, the drumming, oh my God. My uh, uncle was an amazing guy. He was an amazing musician and he was the party maker. He used to build those huge fires and he would take his bandoneon, which was an accordion. Yeah. The drummers would come in and man, that's the drumming. People think that they've heard the drumming here. Drumming over there was in the village. Oh, and a lot of the people that I meet again saying, man, you made us dream with Africa, with your African tales. But of course, the main attraction of Georges' program was that American popular music. Maxi Voom Voom, le Maxi Voom Voom de Georges Collinet. The herbal pert, you know. Taste of honey. Taste of honey. That, my <laughs> God, the taste of... I, I don't know how much money the, the Voice of America owes herbal pert. I tell you, <laughs> right, uh, that oh thing dear. went on and on. It was called It, Bonjour okay. l'Afrique. Bonjour l'Afrique. You know, it That's was... funny. That yeah. was, I mean, I was a kid then, but that was one of my favorite records. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. It was, it <laughs> so. was, yeah. So I had 40 minutes of um, American music, blues primarily, black music, yeah, soul and things like that. You know, at the time, it was so bad that I would bring 45 RPM records. But th these usually had race music, as they called it. It was Ooh, black they music. They still used that term, race oh, yeah, music. Yeah, yeah, right. I would give the 45 to some of the engineers. They would touch it as if it was dirt. Really? The fact that it was a 45, which connoted race music, they just ah, hated it. Now, as the 60s became the 70s, Georges was also hearing the fantastic new music emerging in the capital cities of newly independent African nations. I thought it was important for me to broadcast also a segment of African and Latin American music because I thought that people had to know about the music because in Africa, the radio in Ouagadougou would only play music from Upper Volta, which was Burkina Faso today. Yes. Or, or in Cameroon, people only played Cameroon music. 
So I had this thing where I wanted people to really hear the music, and Decca Records was helping me with that. By the way, the walls of vinyl records in George's studio powerfully attest to that history. So you recognized right away, okay, this is something yeah, new, this yeah, is exciting, yeah. this needs to be heard. Yeah, yeah. And so what are some of the ones that really stick out to you from that time that you still have to listen to every now and then? Oh, Franco is just... I, I'm sorry, Taboulé. Taboulé is my big buddy. Yeah. Franco is my big buddy also. But you know, they're looking down from it's, heaven. Yeah, now. they're looking down at the two wings yeah, of the yeah, airplane, yeah. as Taboulé once yeah. described it to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's French author and vinyl collector Florent Mazzolini. He's now working on a new book about Franco and the hockey jazz. And he says it's impossible to overestimate the importance of this incredible Congolese band that lasted from 1956 up to Franco's death in 1989. That's how it's all started. And even, you know, uh, traveling to Burkina Faso, traveling to Ghana, traveling to Benin, uh, I found out that in the early 60s, every time there was a foreign band that came to this remote country, it was the OK Jazz, Franco OK Jazz. Basically, he played all over Africa, even in Nigeria, all over in Kenya, Tanzania, Sudan, Chad, Senegal, all over the place. OK Jazz basically laid out the modern basis for African music, this fusion of uh, local tradition mingle with uh, Cuban influences and some modernity, you know, in the guitar playing and in the percussion and in the way that the horns were used. The immortal Franco with his mega-hit Mario. As Flora Mazzolini says, Franco laid out a blueprint for a whole generation of African music creators, and his music traveled like nothing else. That's not to diminish the greatness of King Sonny Ade's juju music in Nigeria, Khaled's Rai in Algeria, Mahlatini and the Mahatela Queens with their euphoric Mbakanga sound out of Soweto, Chimaringa, Makosa, Marabenta, Salegi, Mbalak. There were so many great styles born in African cities in the 60s and 70s. 
There's a lot more to check out in my interview with Georges, and you can find a transcript on Afropop.org. As we said, Georges played a crucial role in connecting Africans to Black American music, but he got a bit of a shock when he brought recordings of African popular music to American high school students in the 1970s. And I went there with my little tape and a boombox, and I would play the music, and the Black kids would hide because they didn't want their friends to listen to something so foreign and that kind of belittled them. They were sending me little notes saying, please don't do that again because all my friends are making fun of me. They think that I'm a savage. For a long time and until very recently, African-Americans were stuck in their ghetto. They were listening to only black American music. Later in this program, we're going to talk about the new music of Africa, Afrobeats, and how it's starting to work its way into African-American consciousness today. But as George noted in our interview, this is part of a larger, gradual embrace of African heritage going on in America in the age of Obama. Now you have this wave of people that are going to check their DNA and yes. find out where they're coming from. Right. It's amazing. This is a new thing. Yeah. That it's possible to do that, but also that people are interested. Interested in that when we, Afropop, should come in. People now want to say, ah, I'm coming from Cameroon. I want to know more about this. Yeah. I'm open. I can listen to music. Because through music, you learn about your heritage also. Yes. Okay, enough talk. More music. Here is a favorite track from one African artist who has done as much as anyone to bring this music to American ears. Senegal's Yusundur. Yusundor with Baycott from his album Joko, The Link. 
As George was just saying, this program has pursued a mission of putting all Americans more in touch with Africa. One thing about George is that he has personal relationships with all sorts of players in this story. In our interview, he mentioned a recent conversation he had with Cameroonian music legend Manu Dibango, whose 1972 hit Soul Makosa was another landmark in African music's rise. I know when Manu Dibango, one day we were discussing that, and they were saying, well, I think we need a, we need a Bob Marley of Africa. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the thing, but it's more than that. It's more than that, and Bob Marley, we, we have the Bob Marleys, but we... There are lots of them. There lots of them, starting with Miriam Makeba. Yep. Yuma Sekela, continuing with... Yusundur. Yusundur. Angelique Kijo. Angelique Kijo. I mean, they are there, but somehow... I don't know. I don't know what the problem is. Uh, because, you know, you have to put that sound in people's ear. Amen. So let's do more of that. Here's a favorite of mine, Mahletini and the Mahotella Queens from the mid-80s with Tutswani Basadi. the Mahotela queens that are still going strong these days. Coming up, Banning discusses the new music of Africa with producer and entrepreneur Rab Bakari. Visit afropop.org for transcripts of that interview and my interview with Banning. I'm Georges Collinet. And I'm Banning Air. And you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International.
in the first part of this program, we talked about how hard it was for African music to cross the borders of language and culture. There are so many cultures in Africa and a lot of pride. But things are changing these days. Banning spoke recently with Rab Bakari, a producer, music agent, and entrepreneur with a unique history. That's right, George. Rab grew up in New York City, and he was present for the birth of hip-hop in the Bronx. But his mother is Ghanaian, so at home he was hearing high life and Afrobeat and Congolese music. Fresh out of college in the mid-90s, he visited Ghana, hooked up with Reggie Rockstone, and together they sparked the whole hip-life movement there. Today, Rab's mission is to break the new music of Africa in America. And one reason he's optimistic is that he's seen such a big change in the way music's being consumed in Africa. It's actually transcended colonial languages. Back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, music on the African continent was broken up by whatever colonizer existed at the time, and those people only communicated amongst themselves. So Cabo Verde talked to San Tome, and San Tome talked to Angola, and you know Senegal talked to Mali. Lusophone, Francophone, Anglophone, those were the big categories. Right. Yeah, but now, language doesn't group music at all, because a lot of the modern musicians, they are singing in their, their mother or father's tongue and it's being played in a country where that country has no understanding of that distinct African language. So it can't be grouped by languages where we used to say Francophone country, we can't even say that anymore. So that's changed and it has a lot to do with the American, specifically the African-American blueprint of what they call rhythm and blues, which all get lumped into this thing called hip hop. That set a template for everyone to follow. That's what I believe and matter of fact, empirically, that's what I know. So what languages are these young African artists using? Well, the trend that's going right now is to sing in the language of that urban area. Pidgin. Pidgin or say Accra, Ghana, Ga. Ga, okay. Or Tree, one of the Akan languages. Yep. Or Fanti, which is an Akan language. Mm -hmm. Or if you're in Nairobi, Kiswahili. Although there's many other languages going so on. So less English yeah. and French. Less English and French, yes. Okay. And urban local languages could be a mixture of a local language with the European language, like what they speak in Abidjan. That type of French is a little bit different. And of course, you know, places like Dakar, they would rather chose Wolof yep. to rap, to sing, to do whatever. So I feel that it's definitely going more toward the local language of the metropolitan area. It's interesting because the impression that I had in Ghana three years ago, talking about this subject with a lot of people, was that there was an advantage to singing and rapping in English because then you had a bigger market. You could be talking to people in all these other countries. And I remember back in the old days when we were first going to Africa, like in the 80s, people all said, oh, they can't understand it, they don't want to listen to it. And the one exception in those days was Congolese music because it was like the ultimate dance They sing in Lingala and everybody just... They just don't care what it means. They transcended over the language. They know what it means. Yeah, But that was kind of the exception. Is that different now, or has oh, it's, attitude it's, changed? The attitudes have changed, it's totally different. Now I'll give you an example. There's this rap artist who came on the Ghanaian scene first, Sarkodier. Sarkodier, yeah. And he did not rap in English at all. All the guest appearances made, he rapped in a Santi tree. Fast. And to this day, in 2016, he hasn't changed that. 
and all his music plays in South Africa, Zimbabwe, Cameroon. He's done collaborations with Angolan artists. Angolan artists has done collaborations with him. He's done collaboration with Kenyan artists, Tanzanian artists, Moroccan artists, all over the place. And I'm sure those artists that he did collaboration doesn't understand a word of the Akan language called Tree. From Ghana, but known to young Africans everywhere, Sarkodie, one of the fastest and most exciting rappers in Africa. So, if language is no longer the key, what is it that makes the new music so successful? Rap says, well, it's all about the groove. The young producers that's using electronic equipment to make this music, they all started getting into this certain groove. And the only thing I can think of as a parallel to this is what happened in the 70s with funk. Okay, James Brown, the godfather of funk, African-American. You had countries from Benin, Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, trying to emulate that funk sound. Ah, yes. Our colleague Mark Levine called this phenomenon the funk belt. And it extends all the way to Ethiopia. So, fast forward about three or four decades, rap music has become pop music in America. Then it's become pop music in North America. So they rap in Spanish in Mexico or they, whatever, right? <laughs> so that blueprint is put out to the world again. So the kids are saying for us to be noticing, let's follow the blueprint set in the United States. It's nothing different. Mm -hmm. It's been done before with the funk music.
So, by the early 90s, we're seeing African rap acts like Senegal's Positive Black Soul. We first heard them guest rapping on Baba Mal's 1994 album, Firing in Futa. Awadi and Amadou Bari from Positive Black Soul. It's the early days of African pop rap in the 90s. And just as the original hip-hop breaks were all about looping instrumental sections of songs, de-emphasizing vocals and therefore language, the beat and the groove become the priority for African DJs. DJ Edu, who DJs for BBC One Extra with uh, Destination Africa. Mm-hmm. We talked about how all the music is similar, like at a party you can play an Angolan record, we don't understand the Portuguese, then blend that same record, the BPMs, the beats per minute are the same, go straight into a Ghanaian record, then you go into a Nigerian record that has like traditional Niger rhythms, whether from the southwest of the country or from the southeast of the country. That blended right in with the Ghanaian record, and then from the Ghanaian record, you go straight to La Côte d'Ivoire and get into their Coupe de Calais. It all just blends right in. Now, this has been bubbling and bubbling for the past 10 years. So, 2005, 2006 to 2015, 2016. They all can do concerts together, and the person who's consuming that won't even break a sweat saying, oh, I don't know what this is, I can't jam to this. Let's get a feel from that transcontinental flow Rab is talking about, starting with Diamond Platinums from Tanzania. Yeah. <laughs> 
a mashup of recent Afrobeats hits, starting with Tanzania's Diamond Platinums, Nehru Americano from Angola, Davido from Nigeria, and Black Coffee featuring Hugh Masekela from South Africa. The unsung heroes of all this are the producers. Producers in the American sense, not the financier, but the composer, the one sitting who in the studio programming. Programming and thinks they need a guitar player who can play a certain type of rhythm. They recreate that electronically on his machine studio, Akai MPC, whatever, pads, yep. stuff like that. Dump all the vocals into Pro Tools and then got something going. Nigerians have always loved their music, but it mostly stayed local. So I asked Rab about the recent spectacular rise of the music we now call Niger pop. This is really something that has gone from zero to ruling the world in 20 years. How yeah. the hell did that happen? Military government ended in Nigeria later than other places. It's the direct correlations of people being happy and being under the thumb of oppression. Any oppressive regime holds things back. People are just afraid to socialize. If you remember the early days of Rawlings Revolution in Ghana, in the late 70s and early 80s, they pretty much had curfews and shut down all the live bands. Yeah, sure. And it effectively killed live music in Ghana, which yeah. Ghana was touted as the live music. People from South Africa, Zimbabwe, all migrated to Ghana Absolutely, to participate yeah. in live music. And it was killed. Hugh Masekela wanted to play his horn in Ghana. Sure. Fela wanted to hire Ghanaian musicians. Right. So, the same thing happened in Nigeria, so when Sani Abacha passed away, change. Paradigm shift, maybe? Yeah. People came back from living in New York and London, Toronto, and um, of course, they bypassed the whole instruments thing and stuff, so they went straight <laughs> to the electronic equipment. To the chagrin of many, so you had music coming out like Ross Kimono, and then you had the whole Fuji movement and stuff to try to counter the electronic revolution. Yes, I, all massive and crew hold tight. This is the Brotherhood Alliance navigating towards unity. Alongside Mr. Adewale Ayuba. All my Fuji massive. I said, all my Fuji massive. Wave your hands in the air, come on. Wave him up. Raise him up! Cause we're about to go like this! Late 90s Nigerian Fuji music from Bantu featuring Adewali Ayuba. You know, George, this point about oppression is interesting. There are exceptions to Rab's rule about authoritarian governments suppressing music. When I interviewed you, we talked about the music of the early years of independence in Africa and how some of those early rulers, hardly champions of freedom or free expression, actually used music to pacify people. When you think about the energy that that music had, now we're talking about music made in the 60s, maybe early 70s. What was it that made that music have that energy? And did it have to do, as we often say, with just the feeling of having won independence? Was that emotion part of what made that music so exciting? That yeah, sense of a well, new future? Well, it was a spirit that was magical. 
It was a happy music, even before the independence. I mean, these guys were creating something. It was a movement. Yes, everybody was feeling liberated, quote unquote. It seemed like it at the time, anyway. <laughs> yeah, at the time, at the time. But you know, a guy like like president of Zaire. Oh, Mobutu. Mobutu Sese Seko. You knew Mobutu. him. Oh yeah, I know. I mean, all these guys, they, they all wore the same glasses that I wore. I used to have these oh, big, heavy glasses. black glasses. Every time they went somewhere, I was invited. And Mobutu, in particular, understood the power of his music, his musicians, and how not only it would serve his purpose, but also he was giving them the chance to improve, to create. He was financing a lot of the bands. And in Mali, you had all these big contests from region to region. Biennale and the contests. The Biennale, you know, they, they were fabulous. Yeah, and Guinea, Secutore, you could and say Secutore, the same thing. He yeah. understood Secutore that. also, yeah. It's really interesting, that paradox of these guys. Yeah. You look at the politics and the brutalities, and the, it's a whole different story. But the fact that they understood mm-hmm. the power of music, it's not all the leaders that, that mm-hmm. had that quality, no. but it leaves a real mark today. Yeah, absolutely. And during music, and during. young singers and rappers in Africa who do promote social justice and we intend to highlight their work in future programs. But I think that's really not the trend in this new Afrobeats music. What do you think? No, it certainly isn't. I mean, take Nigeria, which, you know, has assumed this dominant position in African pop in recent years. Rab talked about the end of military rule there and how that opened things up for creative industries, but the presence of big money in oil-rich Nigeria has also played a role. There's this super-rich elite there, and they've studied how things are done in America and applied it to their own popular music. Take plenty of money, put it behind one artist, and make that person bigger than Jesus. Yeah. Dress them, fake it till you make it, put them in a mansion, It might be some politicians' mansions. And then those politicians or those businessmen who had wealthy children that they sent to school, they got influenced by American music. They just tapped into their parents' account to be what they wanted to be. They wanted to be the top DJ, buy me electronic equipment, produce, become a rap star, whatever. I have access to money. So it became a money thing where Ghana didn't have that much money. There's this kind of obsession with wealth that's really a big feature of Niger Pop and some of these other new genres. All the big hits come with videos, and they have a familiar look. The formula's still the same. The male artist, the fancy car, the big house. If you look at all the Nigerian music videos, it's the same. And then, male dominance, you bring in the girls. And the girls is below them, dancing, 
complimenting them by not shining over them. So a star like Tiwa Savage is somewhat of an outlier in that paradigm, right? Yeah. She's an outlier because she's a female coming from the Yoruba people, but at the same time, she used the same formula. What are the American women doing? And the women over here look down on the society, but look at the women in the United States, specifically the black American women, Mariah Carey, whatever. I need to be on that level. So what, they're gonna criticize that I'm shaking and doing something sensual and sexual, but that's what the Americans are doing. Savage of Nigeria. You know, I recently spoke by phone with Sheun Kuti, that's Fela's youngest son and now the leader of his Afrobeat band Egypt 80. Sheun says he actually supports these young artists in Nigeria. He's okay with them using the term Afrobeats, though he notes that these artists are not brave and political. They all praise Fela, but they don't really emulate him. Sheyun's critique of Nigerian youth comes through in a song from his new EP, Struggle Sounds. The track is African Dream. Too many yummy youths lost to television, chasing the American dream. Tell me who they dream for Africa. Too many yummy youths believe in a hype, living in a stereotype. Ha-na-na. Many yummy youths lost to television, chasing the American dream. Tell me who did dream for Africa. Too many yummy youths believe in a hype, living in a stereotype. Tell me who they leave. Leave for Africa. So many wonder good life. I know Wonder new thing. I know Wonder new house. I know That new car. Designer clothes and shoes Designer bag and jewels Lavish like we rulers, them they do Lavish like we big men, they do Oh yeah, but we need to know So when we close, we eyes to dream So we no close, we eyes to blind We need to know The duty of Africa, they born with children every time So we no fit Blind to the people who suffer Blind to the pain Blind to the exploitation of my brothers and sisters for gold and silver Blind to the killing of my people for foreign gods and foreign corporate boards We must dream for the victims of aggression We must dream for the dying children We must dream for the victims of oppression 
We must dream for the suffering children. When we close, we ask to dream. But too many young people. Shayun Kuti with new Afrobeat from Nigeria. Now, Fela's Afrobeat, with its roots in Nigerian tradition, radical politics, James Brown funk, is one African style that has actually made some inroads with African Americans. But the power players in Nigerian music today are banking on a different approach. Nigerian star Wizkid, for instance, is now in negotiations with Sony and Universal. He's already collaborated with hip-hop star Drake. And the hope is that American ears will be open to his sound. Are you gonna dance you if I show you my money? Are you gonna dance you if I show you the way? Are you gonna dance you if I show you my pockets? Baby, are you gonna dance you if I show you my wallet? I will show you the money. Baby, dance from you. Baby, move from you. Don't go from you. I will show you the money. Baby, dance from you. Show me your body. Don't go from you. African, 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 baby. African, 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 baby. I don't know. When it gets to the black Americans, then that's when it's going to become a thing. So the black American in Atlanta, Georgia, at a barbecue, plays Chris Brown, this young R&B artist, right? Then they move to the Caribbean artist, so they say Sean Paul. Everybody knows Sean Paul. Regardless of his color and everything, he's Jamaican, right? Sean Paul, the next logical person that Universal or Sony wants that to be is the Wizkid. So the African-American who's never been to Africa and her name is Mrs. Jackson, she now knows Chris Brown, Sean Paul, and Wizkid. All in one barbecue setting and she's dancing from one record to the next. Is that happening That's now? not yet. That's when this thing we call Afro Beats will come to America. And Rav says the key to that is Terrestrial radio. That's it. Radio, yeah. Sure. So if you get that DJ on Friday night playing that master mix, then the program director bumps it up into his rotational spin during the weekdays. And that one record, you know, I don't know what the hell he's saying. Nobody understood Dwala from when uh, Manu Dubango was singing Soma Kusa. Traditionally, you would go to a record label to get finance your dream and your idea. These days, they go to corporations, whether it's a telecom, whether it's a beverage company, whether it's an alcohol company, whether it's a tobacco company, whether it's uh, some manufacturer or some product. If you're lucky, you become a partner, and it's for their particular campaign. So maybe they have a six-month campaign, and they need to get to a certain demographic. That's why I come in and I pair them. The campaign budget is, say, 45,000 US dollars for three months. I get a percentage of that. What Rob is doing is quite interesting. But, you know, in order to sell something, you have to sell something. What is it? We're selling what? Selling African music? Well, why not try it? Why not try it? I have a lot of, of DJs who come here and they go through my records. They come yeah. from France even. Uh -huh. they, and they go through my records and say, Oh my God, you have this. Can they let me put it up? And, you know, they will tape it because yeah. they can't find it anywhere else. Yeah. But I think that the role of Rab could be very important if he can really connect people. And it will be a boost for African music, that's for sure. 
Well, I find it interesting that his goal now, with all these techniques he's using, is exactly the same as what your goal was in 1965 when you started putting that segment in your show. You're trying to make African Americans understand Africa in a different way and, and connect to it on a cultural level. And we're still fighting that same fight. It's it's a long, long road. It's a long road. And I, and I don't know what the problem is, because after all, all the music that you hear has African roots. You know, it's, it's amazing. And we're here, you know, fighting some dark shadow. It's ridiculous. I don't understand what Maybe it's it's our fault we're doing Afropop, but we should do more even into television, produce some good stuff for television. Television. Well, hold that thought. We'll certainly continue this conversation in the months and years to come. But meanwhile... Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Carnegie Hall, presenting Ethiopian vocal legend Mahmoud Ahmed on October 22nd, and South African guitarist Derek Gripper with Trio Dakali from Mali on November 12th. Ticket information at carnegiehall.org slash events. Thanks to Rab Bakari for his help with this program. Visit afropop.org to read Benning's interviews with Rab and yours truly. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. Our Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by my co-host, Banning Air. For more music and conversation about all things Afropop, be sure to subscribe to our podcast series, Afropop Close-Ups, now in its first season from the producers of Afropop Worldwide. And don't forget to join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Stephanie Lebeau. Benning Air and CC Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our producer for new media is Akornefa Akia. And I'm Georges Collinet. Public Radio International.